This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. Hey guys, this is Tweety. You can follow Fish Out of Water podcast on Twitter at FooPod, F-O-O-W-P-O-D, or on Facebook at facebook.com backslash fish out of water podcast. Thanks guys. Enjoy the episode. Uh, uh, uh. Check it, you are now tuned in to Fish at the Water Where comedians learn from forerunners and give honor Tweety and Jeremiah mix it up like honor farmers Making sure everybody leaves educated like scholars This is Fish Shadow Water This is Fish Shadow Water Hey guys, welcome to Fish Out of Water I'm Ryan And I'm Jeremiah And, and today, we have a very, very special guest Preach, preach he was a writer for Wilfred. He moved his way on up the writing ladder <laughs> through various means of becoming better at his craft. I don't know. Um, this is great so far. Yeah, I'm crushing it. Um, he became a co-exec producer for uh, the show Deadbeat on Hulu. <laughs> that <laughs> is correct. Mr. David Baldy, everybody. David hey-o, Baldy. Hey-o. <laughs> the best intro today. Yeah. For fish out of water, and yeah. that was take eleven. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm telling you, like, I don't want to brag or anything, but I'm really good at this. You should be the guest. Yeah. The thing is, is that no one can see the cringing from the guest <laughs> every, time. <laughs> every time while Tweety. Yeah. Some people hide it better. Uh, yeah. Others don't. I wish I was behind a curtain right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. yeah thanks, thanks for coming man. on. Yeah, so I've known Baldy here, David, Mr. David Baldy here for, uh, I don't know, almost two years, maybe? Maybe longer. How long have you been going to that gym? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, about a little over two years now. Wow, and you're still that bad. <laughs> what do you mean? I'm so good. I lost 40 pounds. My oh, mile, that's great. My mile time's great. I always hear yeah. about Tweety's mile time dropping. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing I'm most proud of. Anyways. <laughs> Um, so you guys met at a CrossFit gym? Yeah, which oh, okay. I'm saying. Unbranded, unbranded CrossFit gym. Yeah, it's not CrossFit. <laughs> it's True Fit. Oh, okay. That way they can't get sued. Hold on. Is that a thing? Yeah, CrossFit's yeah. a brand. Oh, shit. So you have to you... license it. It's like a 1000 a month. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so a lot of people change their name to like XFit or, um, you know, random things like that. Right. Got you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's a great way to meet people in the industry is go to a gym. Mm-hmm. Um, what a nice segue to our networking. Topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I guess I think the most interesting part of this for me personally is why there we go. There it is, guys. That's edit number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll fix that right there. Um, I think what's most interesting about my conversations I've had with you about this is sort of your origin story. Yes. Would you like <laughs> would you like to would you like to share that with us? Are we starting from childhood or from moving to California? Um let's start with where you think is most fit. Cuz I know you did some like out of the box thinking to kind of get your head correct the, before you moved here. It was the fall of 1998. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> wow, some sound effects to make it like yeah. Um let's see. I'm going to start before that because it'll just be easier and you it's going to hit a topic you wanted to touch on. Okay. Um, my entire life since I can remember, I've wanted to be a writer. Um, since I could write, I've been writing, whether that was creating my own G.I. Joe profiles for, you know, my own series of G.I. Joe-like characters or, you know, mimicking the A-team and stuff like that on paper and stories, reading the Hardy Boys and trying to write my own mysteries. 
Um, I attempted a screenplay at probably 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. I attempted a novel at like 15 or 16. Um, I always read comic books, and I always wanted to write comic books once I learned that people actually wrote those. I, you know, when you're a kid, you don't realize that, that this thing that you buy off the stand is produced by a human being. It's just a thing to you, and it's awesome. And then one day you discover that somebody writes these stories, and you get to buy them. And it's like, wow, I can create these stories? So, like, I remember uh, submitting a letter to Marvel when I was a teenager trying to get a job, um, which sounds crazy, but there's actually, I don't know if you guys are comic book guys. Either of you? I'm. I am not. Um, I am, yeah. You know the name Jim Shooter? No. Jim Shooter was the um, CEO of Marvel, or the, the whatever the, the editor in chief of Marvel, mm -hmm. uh, back in the '80s for the Secret Wars era and a very successful period of their history. And he got his first job writing comics when he was like 16, I believe. Mm. Um, but that was in you know like the '70s, maybe even the late '60s. But anyway, for me, um, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I went to college. I had a partial writing scholarship. I didn't get a writing degree because I knew that if I ever had a fallback plan, the writing degree wasn't going to mean anything for a real job. And I also had this feeling, and later it was proven to be true, that you don't need a writing degree to get a writing job in Hollywood or probably any, anywhere in the entertainment industry. You just need to prove you can write. Mm -hmm. You know, If you put on your own Broadway show or your own improv show or whatever, it doesn't matter if you have a writing degree. It doesn't matter if you've published anything, sold anything. People are going to see that and go, wow, that was really good, mm -hmm. hopefully. And so I want to do something with that guy. Um, so I graduated with a, with a minor in creative writing. And then I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. I was 21, and I ended up... At the time, I, I was working part-time for a supermarket chain in Florida, and I was like, I'm going to move, I'm going to stay with this company, and I'm going to try to move up in management while I'm writing on the side, because I was 21. And I had this thought that turned out to be crazy, that if you spend your youth practicing the craft, then when you're 30, you could go to Hollywood and maybe get a job, and you'd be like really awesome at it. So for like a year, I transferred up to Atlanta where they were expanding, and I worked there in the supermarkets, and I wrote in my spare time. And I did that for maybe nine months out of that first year. And I was like, what am I doing? I'm 21. If I go out there and fail, go out there now and fail, I can come back to this job at 30, and I won't have missed anything. Like, I will be right in the same position I was in and on the same track towards management. But if I don't do it and I try to do what my original thought was, then who knows what I lost out on or, fit or you know, gave up by trying this sort of backwards plan. Yeah. So I ended up quitting the job in Atlanta and I moved home with my parents in Connecticut for a year while I tried to figure out what to do with my life. And I didn't know anyone in the entertainment industry. The closest we had was we had an uncle who was in a band with the woman who played um, Olivia on Sesame Street, who was later in 227. Do you, remember? <laughs> do you guys know those yeah, references? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you know Sesame Street, but um, she died a few years ago. Uh, anyway, I never knew her. I never, but like literally that was the only famous person that my family had any connection to. And that was essentially worthless. And, um, so I'm sitting in, in Connecticut and I'm like, do I go to New York? Do I go to LA? This is 1998 and it's the summer and I'm getting increasingly frustrated living at home because you can't, if you think it's bad when you're like a teenager or a young twenties person living at home, try leaving and then coming back to living at home. It's a step backwards. Your parents thought they got rid of you, and now they're angry that you're back. Like, I did it for like three months before I moved to L.A. When I w lived in Chicago, then moved out here, I went back for like three months. And God, 
it felt like I just felt like such a loser. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. in my case, I felt like a loser, but also it, I just felt like I was butting heads with parents a lot. Be- and I think secretly because they were like, God damn it, you were our youngest kid and we thought you were out of the house and we were free of all this and now you're back. Yeah. Um, so out of desperation, I remember I got this idea. This is 1998. The only things that exist in terms of the internet that you've heard of today are AOL and Yahoo. They don't even have image search at the time. Those are just email addresses and with the AOL interface um, and, and some basic searching function. There is no Google. There's no Facebook. There's no LinkedIn. There's no Twitter. There's no Instagram. Um, so I remember I had this idea. I, I was watching. I was writing specs for half-hour sitcoms, and I was watching a ton of reruns of and new shows. So wait, let me. I'm gonna stop you there and ask you this question. So you're writing specs with basically no training on what a spec should be. Correct. There is a a book. You know, I'd taken classes in college okay. for um, movie writing. In and Connecticut? I, no, in Florida. In Florida, okay. Um, and I think there was maybe I got. I don't even know because back it's so weird because the world is so different now where everything's at your fingertips. Yeah. So you don't remember how you found stuff back then. Mm-hmm. But I believe that maybe in college or something, I was aware of a book for writing sitcoms. I don't know. Somehow I knew this book existed. I remember you had to drive to all the Barnes and Nobles and hope they had a copy in stock. You know, it wasn't just like click, click, and it was there the next day. Right. And I found what at the time was like the one book in publication about how to write a sitcom. And so I read that, followed the instructions. You know, I've seen so many episodes of sitcoms. Or, I mean, when I would play my entire childhood, the TV would be on, whether it was I Love Lucy or whatever, um, and I would be playing G.I. Joe's or whatever, but there would always be a sitcom on. Like, it was constantly in the background of my, of my life. And so I was working on specs, and I, I probably wrote, I don't know, three, four, maybe even more in that year that I was home. And I got this idea, and I was watching a lot of these half-hour reruns and, and new shows, and I got this idea one day, I remember, and I, and I remember because I discarded it as stupid, and maybe there's a lesson in here for people who are trying to make it in something. And the idea was... And I don't know if you guys know this because AOL is so archaic now, but back in the day when people, everyone was using AOL, uh, you have a member profile. You don't have to create a profile for yourself, and you don't have to put accurate information in. So I'm telling you that because the odds of somebody having filled out an accurate bio that says, David Baldy, this is my email address, I live in Connecticut, or whatever the truth is, were so slim. And the search functions were so basic, they only would return 100 matches. So if your name is Ryan Tweedy, there might be more than 100 of you in the world, or there might be more than 100 mentions of you in the world, or there might be more, more than 100 Ryans that just mentioned the word Tweedy because they misspelled the character from cartoons or whatever. Right. And so they're all in that match, and they're pushing out the real person. So it's just a crapshoot. But I had this idea at the time that I would search the names of the writers and producers on all the shows I was watching through the AOL member directory. And I found about a dozen that were either likely that person or definitely that person. And I wrote up this email that was, you know, about a page that basically said, hi, my name is David. If you are the John Smith, fill in the blank name, from Murphy Brown or from Larry Sanders or from Roseanne, whatever their their main credits were, and you wouldn't mind answering a few questions for a 21-year-old who lives in Connecticut who's trying to break into the industry, um, please respond to this email. If you aren't that person or you just don't want to be bothered, don't even respond and I'll never bother you again. And I got like six or ten people who wrote me back various stages, but I ended up getting three that I had 
a lot of back and forth with and had a really close relationship with. Um, one of them who left the industry not long after that period, you know, by the year 2000 or 2001, I think he was out of the industry um, voluntarily, you know, because it's, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but it's, it's a tough industry. Even if you get in and you find the success you're looking for, it doesn't mean that you're going to hold on to that um, forever. And anyway, he actually let me mail him a spec script. And then we got on the phone for an hour on like a Thursday night and he gave me notes on that script. Damn. So that's cool. That's crazy. That's yeah. Cool, right. That's crazy. I mean, I don't know if that goes on today because it's just so different. You well, can just it's so click easy Facebook too. or LinkedIn or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, I don't want to say I was the first person who did this, but I was one of the first people who did something like this. It was because it was almost like, do you remember how it was back in the day? I don't know. You're, you're almost my age. Are you close in age to him? I'm 30. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. you might not remember, but back in the day, there was a stigma to finding dates online. Everyone finds dates online now. That's the norm. You know, there's yeah. like a new app every six months, basically, for how to filter those people you want to meet online. And so it was the same back there. There was a stigma. It's like, oh, you met that kid online and you let him call you at your home and you gave him notes on a script or whatever. Mm-hmm. That makes me weird at the mm-hmm. time. You know, today it's like, oh, you're so clever. Or, oh, why'd you do it that slow way when you could have just clicked LinkedIn or yeah. whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Three people that I had a stronger relationship with. One was this guy named Noah, who I just mentioned, who was nice enough to to do that. Uh, Another guy's name was Jay. Tons of major credits like uh, Simpsons, uh, Malcolm in the Middle, Frasier, tons. And another guy named Peter, who kind of became my first mentor. And they not only answered my questions, but they answered them in such length and detail that I was just blown away by how generous they were with their time. And, I, and I've printed all these emails. Like, I saved all of this stuff from what's now 20 years ago because um, it was just, like, it was, like, emotionally touching, you know, mm-hmm. that somebody would do this that is, is on a, in some cases, multi-million dollar TV deals, you know, but they're taking the time to respond to someone they've never met. And by the way, as I mentioned earlier, there's no image search. We don't know what each other looks like. We're not, we've never talked on the phone, in, in, except in the case of Noah. But there was Instant Messenger. And I remember when I would elevate the relationship from just a couple of emails to like Instant Messenger, that's a scary moment. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, will he w- at that point go, whoa, I've been really generous with you, but yeah. now you're creepy, yeah. you know, because you're hoping to cultivate an, the beginnings of a network in my case. Um, so that if I do ever come out to this town and I am trying to get work, that this guy remembers me fondly as opposed to this, the guy who like pushed too hard or, you know, came off like a creep. So right. anyway, it all worked out with the three people I've mentioned, and, and they were all really nice. And, and about a year after I had moved home, I was like, okay, I made the decision. Because I kind of skipped over this a little earlier. I knew when I went back to Connecticut that if I was going to write for TV, I was going to have to go to New York or L.A., And when you're in Connecticut, it's easier to go to New York. I had a friend who was going to go to the actor's studio, so there was an opportunity there to have a roommate and someone I knew, and it's a lot less scary. I don't don't have any family or friends west uh, at the time, west of, like, Pennsylvania. So to move out to L.A. knowing nobody and having nobody, that's a scary proposition. Um, But I did it. I made the decision to do it, I should say. And I was sitting at home, and uh, I remember Peter, the one guy I mentioned, he had a pilot for HBO, and everyone that responded to my emails with those questions that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. my questions were basically like, where did you go to school? What did you get your degree in? How did you break in, and how would you recommend 
somebody break in. And almost everyone recommended you break in by being a writer's assistant, which in case you don't know, in every TV writer's room, there'll be like five, 10, 15 writers, and there'll be one or two writer's assistants that are the secretary sitting in the corner writing everything down. So you get to be in the room with writers, so you're cultivating relationships, and you get to impress them if you have a cool showrunner who lets you pitch. Sometimes they don't want the guy in the corner to say anything. They want them to just be quiet and type, you know? Um, but I think a lot of that, in my opinion, just having done that job successfully a few times, I think a lot of that is they don't want somebody who's not good enough at the writing part of it, the pitching side, to be pitching, because then it's just adding to the amount of time they're going to be working to solve a problem before they get to go home and see their families. So it becomes a delicate situation where it's kind of like a blanket rule they don't want you to pitch because they don't want to offend the one that isn't maybe talented enough or good at that skill. Some people are good writers on paper and some are good in a room where you have to pitch ideas off the cuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And in my experience, more people are good at writing than they are at the off the cuff pitching. Right, so let me, okay, let me, uh, let me stop you here and ask you this. So to get a job as a writer's assistant, what are some things you'd recommend? Well, I'll tell you what I did, but I don't know if it's applicable, and then I'll tell you the right way. That. <laughs> um, I knew at the time that Peter had a pilot for HBO, and everyone who had responded said, be a writer's assistant. So, and this was, my birthday's in March, and it was a couple weeks before my birthday that I mustered up the balls to do this, and I wrote him this email, and I was like, listen, I'm gonna move, I already made the decision to move out there. I'm gonna move out there at the end of May, and I would love to be the writer assistant on your pilot. Now, from my understanding, the only real qualifications are you have to build a type fast and you had to know Final Draft, which seems pretty normal now, but Final Draft wasn't that well known back in 1998. Um, and I did know Final Draft because I'd been working on it all year and I am pretty computer savvy and I was a fast typer. And then I sent off that email and I just remember the nerves of that. like is this going to be the thing that severs our relationship where he's like, I've been cool to you for six months, but now you pushed too far. Like, leave me alone or whatever. And two weeks went by with no response. And when you're living at home and you put basically all your eggs in this basket of like, <laughs> I want to leave. And this is like the only possible lifeline that I've got. And no one's responding in any way. It's just eating you up for two weeks. Like, is it, is he going to respond? Did I push too far whatever? Yeah. And then on my birthday, he didn't know this and he still doesn't know this on my birthday. He responded, and said, I will give you a writer assistant job if the pilot goes to series because a pilot only has one writer assistant and a series has two. And he already had a woman that he had been working with for years that he had promised the position on the pilot. So he couldn't give me that job on the pilot. And frankly, you probably don't want a guy who's never done it to be your lead writer's assistant on your TV show. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need two people. He can be the one who watches and learns, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Series meaning that they shot the pilot, it did well, and now they're going to continue on yes. with the yes. remaining episodes. Um, I feel like, was it the opening scene? Not the opening scene, but one of the first scenes in Pulp Fiction where they're like, do you know what a TV pilot is? Do you don't remember this? And then mm. they explain it. Mm. Um, Fox Force 5, I think, was the reference. In oh, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, most often, most often, TV pilots are written as scripts and then shot, and they invest a couple million dollars in shooting one episode. They cast it. And then they might recast it if they want to go to series with it. They'll test it with an, you know, like a focus group in like Vegas or something, and they'll see how it goes. But also the executives' opinions matter. And then they'll decide whether it's going to go to series, and they're going to then be investing millions every week instead of just a few million dollars to build the sets for the first time that'll get thrown away. It'll be a couple million amortized each week over 13 or 
22 episodes. Ryan just picked his ear, and it was very distracting. Was it? it, it my ear itched. <laughs> it's okay. Is that gross? Because I do things that are much grosser than no, that. So if no, that's no, gross, no. like no, you should start out with the least gross and build to the bigger ones. <laughs> okay, yeah. good. Build. You up. just pulled the hair out of your nose. <laughs> that's beat number two of the gross story. Um, where was I? Uh, talking about series. Oh yeah. So a pilot goes to series. So in the case of Peter and my email to him, you know, he said if it goes to series, which is a long shot in itself, guys. When you try to sell something you're starting at like you know like a, a thousand five thousand who knows how many people are pitching shows every pilot season right and then a very small number of those get bought to be written as scripts and then a very small number of those written scripts get filmed as pilots and then a very small number of those ones that get filmed as pilots get put to series mm. you know so even if you sell a pilot you're like oh i sold the pilot the odds of you ever getting it to a series, let alone two years or four years or syndication, are so astronomical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you can never rest. You That's can never crazy feel like every TV show I see has gone to series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it seems like me, we're shooting 100. But here. it's like an iceberg, man. It's like you see only the ones right. above water. All the ones below are the ones that haven't gotten made. Or have gotten shot. I mean, just knowing people out here that we know, oh, there's yeah. so many people have been like, "Yeah, I shot a pilot," and I was like, "That's amazing," but you never see it. Never see it. It yeah. never comes. You know, which and then all kinda, of a sudden you do, and you have that one famous friend. We should make a. <laughs> we should make an app. This is going to make someone a million dollars. We should make an app that takes all of those blown out pilots and put it on there for people to watch. Yeah. Oh no, I've always oh. thought there should be a cable network of just failed pilots because yeah. there are actors before they were famous in these things. You know, there are writers yeah. before they were famous. There's stuff that was taboo at the time or too edgy for TV at the time. But now you'd be like, really? That was yeah. the reason they didn't want to pick that in up. In South Park he ate his best friend's parents. <laughs> that was in the pilot? No, just oh. in an episode. In an episode yeah. Um yeah, that's interesting. I bet you NBC or CBS or whoever owns those pilots, right? Right. right. They're not gonna like. But they don't do anything with them. Correct. They it's... just. But if you're, if it's a website or it's an app that has pilots that have failed for whatever reason, it's no. I mean, unless it defames the network, but they wouldn't no. have put money into it. Yeah, anyways. I don't know the it reason just... why they they haven't done it. There might be, for example, when you do a pilot, you don't pay for music because you're not going to air it. You only have to pay oh, for music yeah. rights and you're going to air it. So people will put temp music in there that there's no way they're going to be able to use that Beatles song for the closing montage. So Definitely. you'd have to go back and invest money in them in order to make them airable mm-hmm. or else there's going to be a lot of silence and like bad sound mixing and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think in this day and age with content creation being such a huge thing and it seems like anyone who creates any content, present company, <laughs> included, uh, can find an audience of some kind, right? right? And who wouldn't want to watch something where like, and I'm just making this up, but Brad Pitt was 22 years old and did a pilot for NBC. You yeah. know, oh my God, like I didn't know that. I would watch that just to see what he was like as an actor to see how he's evolved. You yeah, know? for sure. Um, but anyway. I bet he was hot. I bet he hotter. was I bet he was super. No, <laughs> no. Men get hotter as they get older. So Brad Pitt was less hot, but still pretty hot, I bet. Says you. <laughs> so uh, to pick up where I was, uh, Peter said, if you, if my show goes to series, I will make you a writer's assistant, but you must be out here in Los Angeles. I am not going to feel responsible for you moving out here for the promise of a job. Now, I had already decided I was going to move out two months later. I was already making those preparations. And I actually asked um, like my five closest friends. Four of them lived in Connecticut. 
or in close to Connecticut. And one had moved to Florida with his family when we were in fifth grade. And I'd ask, you know, they're all the same age as me roughly and sort of figuring out what they're going to do with their lives. And I just asked them all, does anyone want to just pack up their life and go to Los Angeles with me? Um, and they, and four out of the five said no. And my friend who lived uh, near Miami at the time said, yes, I will do that. And so he, he quit his job. He packed all of his belongings. He was living at home in Florida. He packed all of his belongings into his Acura Integra, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like the smallest Acura. It's, it's like a an car, engine. yeah. I forget. Mm-hmm. They don't use names anymore. They use numbers, so I don't know what it is now. But mm-hmm. um, he drove up to Connecticut in that little car, and then we hitched it to the back of a U-Haul truck that I rented. Um, remember in my story earlier, I had lived in Atlanta for a year, so I had an apartment with furniture. That was all in my parents' basement. So we just rented a U-Haul, filled it with my furniture. I didn't have a car, so we hitched his car to the back, and we drove cross-country. Mm. I had an uncle in Vegas, so we stopped there, unhitched his car, and then continued to L.A. without the U-Haul because we didn't want to navigate around the city mm-hmm. And th- with the U-Haul because we had to find an apartment. So basically, I had enough money saved to fund a 10-day move, and he had no money. So the, the, the objective was get to Los Angeles, find an apartment, use this last thousand dollars as our down payment, and then get jobs within 30 days or we're fucked. That was the, that was the bottom line. So we unhitched the car in Vegas. Holy we drove shit. out here. And for some reason on Mondays, we got here on a Monday, most building managers take Monday off. So every, and remember, this is 1999, May of 99 at this point. Uh, there is no Craigslist. Like this doesn't like... What's that um, rental, West Side uh, Rentals? Oh, that, West Side I think Rentals. that existed at the time. Um, but you can't find... So you had the, to go oh, get like... Yeah, you're going door to door is what I'm trying to say. You're oh. knocking and you're saying, I guess I would like to live in this block. Or I guess I would like to live in this city. Didn't and they used to have like those papers where it would be like... The, the papers, but they also yes. had like... They had legit companies that would set up shop that you'd go to. Yeah, those places suck though because they... Right. they they take a cut, or they take. They would jack up them. the rent. Rent, I think, like you'd pay more if you went through them because they had probably that in they Chicago. Have to make money. Mm-hmm. Well, bottom line, uh, probably three quarters or more of the places that we had time to knock on the doors just weren't available on Monday. So whether they had a vacancy or they would have been a better place for us to live, we didn't have that option. So life steered us to a place that happened to have somebody who was working that day, and that's where we ended up. And then what we neighborhood. Um, it was on Burbank Boulevard in Van Nuys, so they called it the Sherman Oaks Regency because they wanted to... It was literally the border of Van Nuys and yeah. Sherman Oaks. They wanted to be the Sherman Oaks side. Um, but we all know it's not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all know what it was. It, like, if I could afford it at that time, we all know where it was. Yeah. And, uh, and so we moved in there. We, I, we drove back to Vegas in his car, hitched it back to the truck, and came out with the stuff, unloaded it, and returned the truck on the last day we were able to before we started accruing late fees that I didn't have the money for. And then now we're both in LA. He has a car. I don't. I'm more of an outgoing salesman-y, talkative type person. He's more quiet and reserved. But he's someone, keep in mind and says, I've known him since we were three. We lived in Connecticut together. He, his family just moved to Florida in fifth grade, and then we just remained pen pals, and we'd see each other once or twice Did a year. Did being roommates ruin your friendship? No. Okay. Um, he's part of a story I'm going to tell you later, so okay. I wanted to establish that character real quick. Um, <laughs> this interview has become a pilot. <laughs> yeah. This is the story. Yes, that's the narrative that's being created. His name is yeah. Chris. Keep that in mind. Um, so we were able to do that, and so now we needed a job. Again, you don't just go online and look for job openings. That's not how it was. It was like you did back in the day where you went and looked for a help wanted sign, you know, or you just picked an employer and said, you know, most retail places are always hiring. At least they were back then. So 
I'll just try that. So we actually, I don't know how we found it, why we did it, I don't know, but we went to Circuit City. And for those of you who don't know, yes, <laughs> all my references are so, so dated. <laughs> like the world has completely turned over in 20 years, audience. Yeah. Look, Circuit City just went out of business like two years no. ago. No, it was like 2008, right? I think earlier. Was, was it? it? I think it was like five. Could have been 2005, yeah. No. Yeah, I no, it wasn't because I – no, I know that's not true because I lived here in 2006, and, and I was here? living with Natasha, who was my second set of roommates, and I was living in – so it had to be at the latest 2010. Oh, it was I mean, not 2010. Er, yeah, I was. thought it was 2008. No. No, let's Google I'll Maybe this. by 2008. 2009. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Was it different? Well, I don't know. I'm just looking at this first match. I have to right do further rules, research. I win, oh no, right. here you go. On November 4, 2008, Circuit City announced it would close 155 stores and lay off 17%. So maybe that was the beginning of the end. 2008. 2008. So it took at least two years. <laughs> so thank you. Can I hear well, you guys? I, the guy just, who worked there was the most wrong of the three of us. Can so. I just hear you guys tell me I was correct? <laughs> you were partially correct. I I'm no. the one who hit it. The best it was 2008 when it started. No, when it, but I but it, but it was still I was still shopping there in 2010. Okay. Sure. All right. Anyway, this is ahead. the part that your audience is subscribing for. <laughs> yeah, this is the part. They like us <laughs> like ripping each yeah. other. And yeah, yeah, go yeah. for it. Actually, right, you're right. Oh, we got um, because Jeremiah insists on ridiculing me for being an Iowa fan, which everybody knows is not the case. I'm a Nebraska fan. Yes. We have our first Nebraska listener that reached out to me on Twitter today to say, "Hey, Nebraska," and I was like, "Hey, how are you as well, Nebraska?" You're getting catfished by an Iowa person. <laughs> that was the extent of his fandom. Yeah, it was just like, hey, you're from Nebraska. Yeah. Me too. I was like, yeah, me yeah. too. We got That's something cool. in common. He might do that every day in Nebraska to everyone he sees. That's great. <laughs> I got a qu- What part of Florida were you in? I'd be curious. Uh, college was St. Petersburg, Florida. Okay. And then um, my friend lived near Miami. My parents, my grandparents lived in Naples, and my parents had a, a condo down there. So we would go down there once a year for like a summer, like a week. Mm-hmm. And I usually would see Chris, he would drive over or I would drive to his, you know, across Alligator Alley. And then usually once a year, his family came up to Connecticut. So we'd see each other about two weeks out of the year. Um, and did you was, work, you worked for a supermarket? Was it Publix? It was Publix. Fuck and yeah, then I man. went to Atlanta Fuck yeah. with Publix because they were expanding there at the time. Now they're, they're, they own that and they're like expanding. Like One thing I miss about the East Coast and being in Florida, I'm from Florida, is... Oh. Publix. Yeah. Tweety, you don't know about Publix. Publix is the I know. Best. I've been to Florida. Publix no. is the best. It's the best. It's like, it's, it's a weird thing for guys to be like, uh, proud of the grocery about store. The grocery yeah. store never, you'll never hear me be like, you know what's great, guys? Hy V. Hy V. I don't yeah. even know what that is. I'm assuming it's, it's some Nebraska. It's Nebraska's grocery store. <laughs> store yeah. Right. It's like the big Midwest, like That's Nebraska, the big one. Iowa, Colorado. There won't be very many people there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not like, well, it's weird because like in Chicago, they have like Jewel Oscos. But everywhere else, I think it's just Osco. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, even that's a reference I barely know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Should I continue? But I want to double back because you okay, didn't. Go ahead. An- you didn't give me the answer you promised me. The writer's assistant. Yeah. How do you? S- okay. So I know that you. So you got it by reaching out to a guy that you somehow, luckily, in a crazy scenario, reached out to on the internet, and that's how you got it. Yes. What? How would can a real person? Let's say that me and <laughs> Jeremiah wanted to be writers' assistants. What would be advise us? Okay, well, pretend that you're telling us how yes. to do it. First and foremost, I would say you have to be ready to step into that role. You should not be trying to pursue a role that you are not ready for, because if you are not prepared and you do happen to get that one in a million opportunity, you're going to waste it. So what's the point? Instead, spend that time being a faster typer, learning Final Draft better. Shortcuts. 
So you can do control C's and V's and whatever else is in Final Draft versus using a mouse, for example. Okay. That will save you time. Just get faster. I actually type with two fingers. I'm faster than a lot of people who type with five fingers. They never know that I'm typing with two fingers. I'm just really fast at typing with two fingers. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just do it, right? Okay. Um, that's, that's the first part. So, And that applies to any job, not just writer's assistant. Like, Be ready for whatever that job is so if an opportunity arises, you can crush it. Um, as far as getting in, you know, I hate Spoken to say like a it, true, like a true CrossFitter. <laughs> when the opportunity arises, crush it. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, I haven't given this a lot of thought in the modern world, but um, I, I bet my story that I'm in the middle of about meeting people online, I bet that doesn't really work as well today because they probably get pestered by a lot of people. If you're a successful writer in this town, and I wouldn't know, but a lot of people who are, they mm. get pestered by a lot of people, I'm guessing. Um, but I would say it's networking, and it's like, well, if you know somebody who's got a show and say, hey, I really want to be a writer's assistant. I really want to be a writer, but I know that you know that's asking a lot, so can I be a writer's assistant? I type 90 words a minute. I know Final Draft in and out, or whatever program they're 90 using. 90 words a minute? That's the goal? Is that too much or too little? I was hoping it was 60. Oh, yeah, you better get up. Because there's people that type over 100. I don't know if you know that in this world. Um, no, I didn't. I've never didn't. tested myself. I know what I'm doing tonight. Yeah, there are a lot of free, There's a free yeah, websites where website. you can you can test it. It also does accuracy, right? Yeah, yes. that's like yeah, you don't get credit for that part. word. You get no rep on that word. Yeah, no rep. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yep. Even um, if you misspell it, and I'm the worst. Spelling has become a second thought to me now. Yeah, which is really well because of the, yeah, the red correct. line. Yeah, well, autocorrect. Yeah. Or, or spell check. Fuck, what do I need to spell? Spell check does the hard work for me. Is that yeah. bad? Is that yeah, a bad mentality that's, that's, to the, have? that's the great uh, effect on the world that technology is having. Why do it, I need to know how to get anywhere? I just ask GPS. Yeah. Well, you know what, though? I have Einstein's theory about that. Uh, so the legend goes, uh, someone asked Einstein for his phone number. And he says, I'll have, to, I'll have to look it up. In a book, I guess Einstein carried around a book with phone numbers, or his phone number in it. And someone said, why do you have to look at your phone number? You do you not know it? Do you not memorize it? Einstein supposedly says, I don't memorize things that I can look up in a book. I leave space in my brain for the imagination or, you know, more critical thinking mm-hmm. type of activities. I think he's bluffing. <laughs> I think that Einstein <laughs> knew his phone number. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe they- she was really ugly. <laughs> when, they, when, they did, um, when they did an autopsy on Einstein, they cut his head open and his brain was bigger than the average brain by quite a bit. And the sparts, the parts of it that were like um, bigger, were the parts that dealt Stored with phone numbers. Yeah, the parts <laughs> were the long-term memory. No, it was like the parts with space and like time, whatever that part of your brain is that dealt with that stuff. Mm-hmm. So my time. point is, is that he had a giant brain. He had plenty of room yeah. for a phone book. Yeah, but numbers. his his point wasn't that he couldn't remember. He didn't. His point was that he chose not to remember so that he could leave space for right. more intellectual right it sounds like a smug answer from a genius to me like i want you to imagine real quick if you're watching it just to put into perspective what just happened yeah imagine you're watching a talk show and somebody asked neil degrasse tyson Mm -hmm. for his phone number and then that smug way he's like i don't remember phone numbers i need to keep my brain open for all these other great things i'm thinking about yeah i mean it's real smug as fuck (laughs) to me as someone who is not good at um because all spelling is memorization, right? Right. Right? I so. hadn't thought about it, but it sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> so so why? I mean, 
especially English spelling. It's not, it's different. Most other languages you can sound stuff out and it, what is it, phonetically? Is that yeah. Right? <laughs> um, he's, a, I, he's a scientist. I would like to point out that if you're aspiring to be a writer assistant, you should know how to spell. <laughs> okay, good. That's a good that one. That will get you dinged. Um, like how badly Dean? Like, like let's it say it depends you, on the analness of the showrunner. But let's I'm say that I super anal, and I would not want a writer assistant who couldn't spell. And and then I just shot a look at Jeremiah as I said that. Yeah. Um. And I've worked Sorry. for at least one guy who was the same way, you know. And I think that's why I succeeded with him and ultimately got a writing job from him. But that's what if you put like story. a comma in the wrong place? No, I don't think that's so bad. But you you get to go back and check your stuff, right? Like, there's one thing sure. of being able to spell on the fly, and there's also being able to like shorthand type words and then be thorough yes, and go yes, through. Yes, but and spell imagine it. this, and you guys maybe have never seen the inside of a writer's room. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a big table. There's five, ten, fifteen people sitting around it, and in the corner is a guy at a desk, and his or a woman. And their desk is hooked to a giant monitor, sometimes two, one at each end of the room, oh, shit. so that all the writers can see what you're typing. Mm. If they're anal and they're seeing all these red-lined words or misspelled words, either it's going to interrupt their thought process because all they're doing is focusing on, oh, he spelled missile wrong, he spelled missile wrong, it's not missile and mistletoe, it's missile, what's wrong with him? You know, Or um, they're saying, because you know, it's... In my experience, and it just depends on the person's level of comfort in a room, but some people don't think about this, and, meaning writers, and they'll just say, hey, you spelled missile wrong. Hey, you spelled whatever wrong. And that is interrupting the room. You want to be focused on what the task is. We're trying to figure out how Ryan can get into that bank without Wilford being noticed, you know, not, mm-hmm. oh, how do we spell this word, you know? Mm-hmm. So the less distracting you are, and that applies also to other areas of life too, you know, you're most productive when you're not distracted. Mm-hmm. So the less distracting you are, the better, because your job in that room is to not... You're like the referee in a wrestling match. A good referee in a WWE wrestling match is not noticed unless the story calls for it, right? But he's super necessary because he's telling one wrestler what the other wrestler yes. just said. Yes, mm-hmm. that's our second half of the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but also in professional sports, you know, the worst major league umpires are the ones we know their names. We should not know the name of a major league umpire, right? Right. Um, so yeah, you don't want to you don't want to be distracted. But to continue on the point, the big question I think that you asked a couple minutes ago was how does someone today become a writer assistant? So you have to network. You have to find a way in. Uh, if that's somebody you know personally, someone that you know through somebody, or I, I mean, I guess you could try the Facebook whatever way. Is and it you inappropriate? Really at it. Is it inappropriate to shoot an email to someone that you vaguely know or knew months like let's say it's been five years but you used to know someone fairly well is five years too long to send an email uh i don't think so because what is the downside if you don't do it you have nothing right if you do it is your situation any worse like now they don't like you to the point that they're not going to talk to you for another five years i don't what do you is there like a is there like a room like a yahoo group full of writers and executive producers and producers that are like don't use this guy. Not that I'm aware of. Okay, good. But maybe I haven't gotten to the level that I need to be to be invited in. You were an level. executive producer, so you at every co-exec, level. Co-exec. Isn't that the same thing? No, it's not, Ryan Tweedy. Uh, an executive producer generally creates the show <laughs> or is in charge of running someone else's creation. Uh, if somebody who doesn't have experience as an executive producer happens to sell something and the network wants to air that, they might love David Baldy's idea, but they might be like, we're not going to put $2 million a week in David Baldy's hands and, and just count on him giving us an arable product. So we're going to bring in this guy who used to run this show successfully, who's not doing anything right now, and he'll be in charge. Um, in some cases, in that 
situation that David Baldy might be a showrunner also, an executive producer, or they might not be. He might be a producer, you know, but it's like they had no credits before, and now they're a producer on their own TV show, you know? Right. It's still impressive. So co-executive producer basically means executive producer in training? Well, you run the room, depending on, like, shows can have more than one co-executive producer, so there's going to be, like, the most senior co-EP. Um, and you would run the room if their executive producer was on set for something or taking a call with an executive and the room needs to keep working. You're still paying writers. You still want to get out at a decent hour. We're still trying to solve the story point. So the co-EP starts leading the conversation. Um, that's one thing you might also be on set. If you know, the shows that I worked on most recently, Deadbeat and, uh, and Wilfred, those are single camera shows that were all written almost completely before they even filmed a scene, which is the difference between single camera and multi-camera. Um, I haven't been on a single camera network show, so I'm not really familiar firsthand with how they do things, but I think they do those things concurrently also. And what I mean is on a multi-camera sitcom, which is where they have like Friends, Roseanne, Frasier, where they just have five sets that they build, and those are generally the sets you see every week in a shot like a play. Those are written and filmed simultaneously. So your writer's room is working they get a couple months to get some stories and some scripts before they start filming but if they're doing like a 22 episode order they might have like six scripts and so then as the weeks go by they start filming week the script number one they're trying to make number seven and trying to make number eight and now they're filming number two and it starts to catch up and you're like holy shit we don't have a script for next week like that's what's going to happen if we don't work this weekend and whatever um so on the shows i worked on because they were streaming and or basic cable single camera it's cheaper to write everything first and then film it because you can say oh well when we rent that hospital for that scene in episode three we can also use it for that scene in episode seven and redress it and make it look like a grocery store for that scene in episode eight so you're only renting one location once and you're getting scenes for three different episodes whereas when you're filming it week after week you aren't aware of what you're going to use that set for three weeks later in your stories you know so you're having to rent everything each week um, now, as a co-EP, do you does that go through your brain, or is it purely some someone else's job to like think of that and you just create? Think of what specifically? Like, like, um, all right, we're we're we know that we're going to be shooting a hospital oh, scene okay, in four so different episodes. On the shows that I worked on, we had that luxury. So yes, we could say. For example, we really want to do this scene in episode five that requires a hospital, but hospitals are very expensive to rent. What could justify that cost if we use it in two more episodes? Because mm -hmm. each episode has a budget for locations, and we can now amortize that one big cost over three episodes. So we can afford to do that scene we really want to do in episode five by writing in stuff in episode seven and eight. So, yeah, there is a possibility to so use that to your advantage. So, actually, so. Um, but that's not specific to a co EP. That's really, that would be the EP's job. But anyone in a room who's smart enough to come up with that thought will share that thought. It doesn't matter and what your rank is. So, so. And I'm going to see if I understand, because sometimes my brain's just slower than everybody else's. And I'm sure there's people that are listening that are as dumb as I am. So, um, so am I. <laughs> uh, um, it, so let's say you, so you're saying you want to write this great scene in this really expensive location. And you need to justify it, right? Mm -hmm. So then they'll go to the writers and say, hey, we need you to write two more scenes that is in this location. Uh, well, I can't say that I've ever experienced it that baldly, but it's more like it's more like um, the hospital is going to cost us a lot of money 
what are we thinking in future episodes that maybe could be shot there? You know, oh, okay. You know what I mean? So we might need, for example, for example, in an episode of Wilfred, we had a weed shop. We, uh, we redressed the writer's room into the weed shop, okay? Um, so we didn't go rent a weed shop is what I'm saying. Right. So we could have just as easily have used an empty office in a hospital if it had worked out that we were renting a hospital during that period of time when we needed a weed shop. Oh, location. so you could have found another room or some yes. part of that, like, set. A hospital is very big. Right. right. So you're going to have like prescription drug area. You're going to have surgery area. You're going to have, um, what is it called? Where the cadavers reception? Go? Oh, the morgue. Yeah. The morgue, um, reception. Reception. Yeah, it's, it is. That's that where the dead it. bodies go. What hospital have you been to? Um, Cedar um, Sinai. So anyway, yeah, your fate. there's offices. There's just where the administration used to be. Cause these hospitals are, are abandoned. You don't rent an existing hospital. You rent an, ab- scrubs was shot in an abandoned hospital in right. studio city for nine years. Or whatever. It was, and it was still there. I think, no, it's now been torn down and it's oh. beautiful apartments or condos or something. Stupid. Um, but I did a pilot Zach in that Braff. same hospital. How, we, need to re- we need to save the legend that is Zach Braff. Okay. Well, rent an apartment there. <laughs> <laughs> and you could feel his energy. Um, so just to wrap up your question about the writer assistant thing, uh, it's by any means necessary. How do I get somebody who has, a, who has the power to hire somebody to be a writer assistant to hire me? That can be a creator slash executive producer, or that can be a line producer, which is the producer on a show who's in charge of the budget. I have had that happen where the showrunner slash creator did not have a person that he already wanted to use. So therefore he's just saying, get me resumes. And the line producer is saying, and that ties to what I was saying earlier about the Yahoo group and getting resumes submitted um, for these job openings. The line producer then says, get me resumes. And you get 30 resumes of people who have all sorts of experience doing that job. And they narrow it down to however many for whatever reasons. Um, And then they bring them in, they interview, or whatever the parameters are set by that showrunner for what he wants in a writer's assistant. Um, Sometimes, for example, the room might be predominantly male, and they're like, get us a female writer's assistant because they want to have a female point of view in that room, and they didn't happen to have a female writer, for example. Um, I can tell you personally, as someone who has gotten a lot of writer's assistants jobs, experienced writer's assistants, not people who didn't do the job before, um, that one thing I would always do because my showrunner was anal is I would, if their resume had any typo, it was out because there's already 30 resumes. So I need some way to narrow this down to 10. So if typo gone, like your job is to know that there's not a typo in the script. So you can't even do it on a resume and you had all the time in the world to make sure it was right. Then you're probably not the guy for this showrunner, you know? Mm, interesting. Um, and then I would generally talk to maybe half a dozen of them on the phone and then bring in like three for an interview and then let him pick. So how much, um, and oh, wait, I just want to say one last okay. thing. Sorry. Um, because I'm trying to... Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the other way in, the most common other way in, is that you're already working on that show or for that person when the opportunity arises. So this is, goes back to what I was saying about being prepared. If you go in as a production assistant, pretty much anyone can be a production s- assistant, which is the guy at the bottom of the food chain who does whatever they need needs to be done, whatever's asked of them. They're a gopher. Pick up coffee, pick up bagels, clean that bathroom, whatever it is. You do a lot of driving around, you know, doing a lot of annoying requests for people, and it's not a job that I could ever do at like 30 years old, but when you're 22 and you're like, yes, I'm working in Hollywood, I'm on the Warner Brothers lot, can you believe all the shows that have been shot here, Friends, ER, like this is cool, I've made it. It feels pretty cool, and you don't think about the fact that you're working 60 or 80 hours a week, driving around town all day. By the way, when I did this job, uh, 
the internet didn't exist like it does today. That's a common theme of this right. podcast. So we had to use what was called a Thomas guide, where you would literally, do you guys even know what that is? Yeah. You I, would pull over on the side of the road and flip to the page of the map. This is like a 200-page map book, basically, of Los Angeles. And you'd like, you, you get coordinates. What's that? You get like yeah, coordinates. Well, yeah. And you, yeah, you'd be like, H3, okay, all right. And then you'd find the street, and then you had to figure it out that way. And try doing that at 2 in the morning. When the script wasn't done until midnight, and then they had to proof it and print it, put them all in envelopes, hand it to you, and then you have to go deliver it to the actors' houses. I don't even know if that goes on today. I feel like you just email, email stuff. Email, yeah. But back then, everyone got a hard copy, even if it was two in the morning. You know what? I bet you. I bet you that. I mean, you would know way better than me. What am I even pretending here? But I bet you that there's some actors that are like, I don't want to print this. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Or an executive. Yeah. I'm sure. Because there are still people left over from a previous generation that are used mm-hmm. to having things their way. Yeah. But it's got to be so much easier because, like, if I was an actor on a show today, I'd be like, just email it to me, and I'll print it out. Like, why would I want you to drive at 2 in the morning through the hills of Hollywood or whatever, risking your life and staying up until 5 in the morning? There were nights when I was delivering scripts until 5 in the morning, you know? Like, and then you had to be back at work at, like, like noon? 10. Like, 10, 10. 10 or 11. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, but anyway, just to wrap up that thought— if you are a production assistant and you are on a show and something happens where a writer's assistant's father dies and he has to leave town for a week and they're like, we got to get someone in here. And you're like, hey, I know Final Draft. I know how to type 90 words yeah. a minute. I'll cover for his week. Then you get that opportunity and they're like, wow, he really knows how to do this. So, you know, if we go to and series. And that guy comes back from his, dad, from his dad's <laughs> yeah. funeral and yeah. he's like, this asshole took yeah, my he's job. He's been Wally Pipped by, <laughs> by Lou Gehrig. He's the Wally Pitt being Lou Gehrig. I don't know if you guys know that reference. I know who Lou Gehrig oh, is. Jeez, it's the most famous story in the history of baseball about a really good player. I'm Wally pretty Pitt. sure the most famous story no, in the history of about, baseball is Babe Ruth pointing <laughs> about a player, Wally Pitt, who was pretty good, got sick or something, and had to take. And back then, people didn't make a lot of money, so they never wanted to take time off. But he's like, I need a couple days off. Like I'm not feeling well. So they're like, All right, and they played the rookie, Lou Gehrig, and he did so good. Wally Pitt never played again. So he lost his job because he took those two days off. Um, but, of course, you're talking about a legend. Yeah, and that also sounds like like a, one of those American stories they tell you to, to like make you be like, you got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> Don't ever be sick. That's the <laughs> lesson. Um, Don't, take um, Don't have a fun life. So, so outside of – okay, so how many, how many times were you a writing assistant before you got your first writing gig or as a staff um, writer? Well – that is a good segue to pick up my origin story. Um, the answer is probably three or four times without like stopping to do all the math, but I'll tell you about the first time. Um, so back, if we're, if we're cutting back to where I was, we had moved out here, we found an apartment, we had gone to Circuit City, and I ended up convincing them, I didn't say this earlier, but I ended up convincing them to hire my friend and myself because I was, it was a sales job, like selling appliances, and I was clearly able to sell and talk and good on my feet, but I didn't have a car to get to work. So you have to hire him, Chris, and we have to work the same shift, or else I can't work here. And so they did it. And so for a year, that's where I worked. But that's how I got money, but I was still constantly trying to break into the industry. And I had a few connections from my email idea. And, you know, I knew that that the guy Peter I mentioned earlier had a pilot coming up for HBO. I couldn't be a writer assistant, but could I be a PA? So I emailed him and I said, hey, I know you can't put me on there as a writer assistant. I totally understand, but can I be a PA on your show? And he was like, yes. And he told the line producer, hire this guy as a PA. See, now this is an example of no one cares who the PAs are because they're churned through so fast because it's a grueling job. No one wants to do that for very long because you're working 60, 80 hours a week doing the worst stuff that you have to do so for like 20 grand a year um well it comes 
at the time it was like 500 a week, but for 60 hours, it's actually decent money because they pay you for 60 hours. Every week you get paid for 60 hours. It's decent money in terms of a starting job anywhere. It's better right. than going to work at Circuit City for minimum wage because you're not going to get 60 hours, you know? Um, also, you know, at the end of the day, there's some Coca-Cola left over or some lunch that someone didn't eat or whatever. There's a lot of opportunity to save money, you know, as someone get who fed. just moved out here and it's their first yeah. job. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Peter said yes. He talked to the line producer, and I literally. <laughs> I just want to go back to that bean. I hope that when they inter- when like people interview for that job, that that's the pitch they give the PA to take the job. Like, hey, we're going to work you sixty hours a week, <laughs> but at the end of the day, there might be some scraps left for you to <laughs> there take. Might home. be a cold yeah. slice of pizza okay. you can take yeah. home. And that's for and you. a half empty can yeah. of Coca-Cola. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then I hope that's they say flat. it with the conviction that <laughs> yeah. you just said it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry. Um, so, uh, Peter. You know, I asked Peter, could he make me a PA? He talks to the line producer. And then, like, on Friday, before they were starting production that Monday, I get a call from production that says, hi, we understand that we're supposed to hire you as a PA per Peter. (laughs) Uh, So please be at work at 7 a.m. on Monday. Here's the address. And I'm like, wow, okay, cool. I didn't have a car when this happened, and I now had just accepted a job to go drive around. So I begged my grandmother for a $10,000 loan which she gave me. And then I went out that Friday and I bought a used car that day so I could start work on Monday. And Monday morning, I showed up at seven. There's only a few people at the office at that time. Uh, and here's the thing that I, was, I alluded to earlier about how the world has changed. Back then, there was a stigma to have met somebody online and there was no image search. I don't even know what Peter looks like. I've never heard his voice and I've now been hired by him. And so I'm in the office on Monday, and everyone knows, oh, Peter knows this guy, and that's why he's working here. But I don't even know if I'm standing next to Peter. So my job that day was to figure out who the F Peter was (laughs) so that I could introduce myself before anyone caught on to what was going on. And fortunately, when you're a high-ranking person on a show, in his case, the the executive producer, you have a parking spot with your name on it. So I just kept watching throughout the day when they would make me do errands. I would always look at that parking spot that said Peter. I would always see, is there a car there now? You know, because if there is, one of the faces I haven't seen that I'm now seeing must be him or is likely to be him. So I ended up, uh, it just timed out well because they're running you on errands all day. It's just luck. But it timed out where I happened to be there when he pulled into a spot. And I ran out there and I just kind of bum rushed him. And I was like, Peter? And he was like, yeah, like flinching. I'm like, hey, it's, it's David Baldy. He's like, oh, hey, nice to meet you, whatever. And I'm like, great. So now I knew him. There was never any awkwardness. No one knew the truth until I got close with them and, you know, wouldn't be judged for it, basically. Mm-hmm. And that pilot didn't go, but I ended up making a good impression on the production team. And what will happen is a line producer will have the same team that follows him around unless they suck and he replaces them or they get their own better gig, you know, where they get elevated. But a lot of times the core of your group follows you around. So there's like a line producer, a production coordinator, maybe an assistant coordinator, PAs, and some other jobs that kind of follow the line producer. They're always with, they're always looking to that line producer for work. So what happened was the guy who was in charge of post-production on that show ended up going on to an NBC show. And this was also, I was still working at Circuit City. And he was like, will you come be my post-PA? And I was like, sure. So I, w- I ended up dropping my hours. I only worked a weekend at Circuit City. But during the week, I was working like 60, 80 hours for this NBC show called DAG, D-A-G, starring David Allen Greer. Clever use of his initials. <laughs> yeah. DAG. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because I just air quoted clever. <laughs> um, and then uh, after that, the next year, because I did that for almost a full year, 
The next year, that line producer that had done the pilot ended up doing three pilot, actually four pilots concurrently, which is almost unheard of. So we had one office at Disney, but there were four pilots coming through. The Bernie Mac show pilot, which ended up becoming a series for like five years. And then a couple you've never heard of. Uh, one, one didn't go anywhere. I'm trying to remember what the fourth one was. But anyway, p two of them were Peter's shows. And the point that I'm getting at is I was back working for Peter without asking Peter for help. So um, I'm a PA on these things. And that woman who had been his writer's assistant on the HBO pilot from a year and a half earlier was going to be his writer's assistant on the first pilot. But it turns out she wasn't available to do the second pilot. And here is me being ready for an opportunity and an opportunity arises. I'm already in the camp. They're going to need a writer's assistant for that second pilot. So I say, hey, let me be the writer's assistant on the second pilot. And he says, all right, sure. So now I've got what I want because I was prepared for the role and I was there when the opportunity arose. And so that particular show, which ended up going to series for six episodes, at the time it was called The Web, but it was set in a fake fictional TV network. Um, so they ended up rebranding it in what may be the worst title for a TV show ever, and it was no one's fault. Um, they just didn't understand the changing technology, among other reasons. But the title of the show when it aired was Wednesday, 9.30, 8.30 Central. That was the title of the show. And TiVo That's had just... That's a horrible name. Yeah. TiVo had just hit at this time. Like, it was just starting. Like, you know, the early adopters were all over it, raving about it. And so my, I remember my first question was, well, what happens if you want to move the time slot? And they were like, oh, we'll just change the name. And I'm like, <laughs> clearly they don't understand this TiVo technology because mm -hmm. the show you put in is Wednesday 930. You're going to go in and, re and go, oh, I have to change the name of that show to Tuesday at 8 or whatever it, it now is. And so anyway, it aired two episodes. It got canceled immediately. <laughs> and they burned off the last four episodes in the summer. But John Cleese was the star. And so I got to work with John Cleese very closely for, cool. for like six months. And uh, that was a great experience. And one thing that I did on there that I think is a very important story for somebody who wants to break in. Um, I, like I said, I was the writer assistant and it was set in a fictional TV network. Well, in the body of the episode, the pilot episode of Wednesday, 9.30, 8.30 Central, there were fictional executives, fictional actors, fictional table reads. You know, it's set like 30 Rock, like in a fake TV world. And there was, and I remember at the production meeting, and if you don't know, a production meeting is where everyone who works on the show sits in a room, and the director and the executive producer and other important people are all facing them, and we go through the script line by line because you might say, props, we're going to need this here. Wardrobe, we're going to need to make sure that bow tie shoots water in this scene or whatever it is. And then, uh, so I'm sitting there, you know, just as, I'm one of the lowest people on the totem pole. Like, I'm just above PA at this point. And uh, something had come up where the showrunner Peter needed my attention. So he had called me up to the front of the room and him and I were talking softly to each other while the director was still leading the whole discussion about the script. And they got to this point in the script where the scene was about a table read. And at the end of the table read, you guys know what a table read is? Mm -hmm. Okay. At the end of the table read, the, there was a scene where the executives were giving notes. So the executives were like, hey, lose that stupid drop the soap joke on page 15, lose the entire tag, we need a whole new scene there, and, and just specific things that we'd never heard in the context of the script. We just knew the joke. We just knew what the notes were that those fake executives were giving. So when this came up, the director goes, hey, Peter, and interrupts my conversation with Peter, and Peter's like, yeah. And he goes, when we do this scene, we're coming in on a table read, 
we're going to need to hear lines from this script that they're reading in this fictional table read from the show that was called Just the Three of Us. In this, It's kind of confusing to tell the story because it's so many layers right, of right, fake. Right, right. Oh, yeah. but, but the show within the show was called Just the Three of Us, and they were reading a script from that episode, and we were going to hear some cheesy joke before they, the, you know, the executives go, ha, 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 and then we cut to a scene where they're giving the notes. And he goes, so we, we're going to need actual lines here because in Peter's script for what became Wednesday 9.30, Central, it was just action. And it just said, we come in on a end of a table read, we hear a joke basically. And he goes, Peter goes, oh, yeah, you're right. He goes, eh, don't worry about it. It doesn't have to be good. I'll have Dave write it. <laughs> and the whole place erupted. And I, w- I remember I whispered in his ear and I said, you motherfucker, <laughs> not only are you going to get a scene, because they had said write a scene, we'll just write a scene. I said, you're going to get a whole script and it's going to have every one of your stupid jokes in it, <laughs> which was meaning there would be a stupid drop the soap joke on page 15. There'd right. be a really bad tag. Cause there was something specific like uh, that. We need a new tag. That one set in the laundromat sucks or something like that. So I'm like, the tag's going to be in the laundromat. Like, like you're going to get the, so that was like on a Friday. So that weekend I wrote the, just the three of us pilot and I landed all those jokes. And then on Monday it became the prop that was on set. And so, Every single person on that set had my actual, what is essentially a spec script at this point, written to be horrible and cheesy, but they know that that's the point. It's like a bad threes company was the idea. Right, right. And, and so there's so much downtime when you're shooting anything professionally. Uh, you know, you wait an hour for lighting to be fixed or whatever, or there's lunch or whatever. Everyone was reading the script, and everyone was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And then executives were joking about, we should pick this up and whatever. But the point is, now you go from being the PA or the writer at the time uh, yeah, I was the writer's assistant in this story. So you go from being the PA or the writer's assistant to being, oh, baldy. Like, you become a name. You become memorable, right? And that's something I always preach to everyone about breaking into this industry is you have to find a way to separate yourself from the pack so you're remembered. That's the most important thing you could do is to be remembered. It's not it, – that's like the foundation of networking, you know? It's not like I was at a party with 30 people. They were all writers. Great. But if you're like – I was at a party with that one guy, maybe because he – J.J. Abrams and he did Lost or something. You're like, oh, I was at a party with J.J. Abrams. That's that story, right? Mm-hmm. How do you become the name that people remember? How do you mm-hmm. rise above that? It doesn't mean, I don't mean to imply that your talent is at that level or anything. It might be. I'm just saying you have to be remembered. It's like if you're picking up a chick and there's 10 dudes trying to hit on a chick in the same club or whatever, what makes you the one that stands out? You know, he dances a certain way. He was the one who had the balls to do that really funny dance when that song came on or whatever, you know? Right. It's just standing out. And so... That ended up happening, uh, that I stood out. And so, and there was another thing that happened on that pilot because it was set, it was just the, it was just the good luck of being on a show that had a fake TV network. But there was a scene inside the, the um, head of the network's office and the head of the network had a big bulletin board on his wall with every network, ABC, CBS, Fox, and then 8, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., and all their shows. And then we had our fake network and all of our fake shows. And you have to write those fake show names, and you have to get them legally cleared because they're going to appear on camera, right? Gotcha. So knowing that he was going to need to fill this board with fake names, I took it up because he, he was also running another pilot at the time. So I didn't have anything to do. So I created like 100 fake show names, and then I showed up on set of his other pilot, and I said, listen, props need you to, to come up with like 30 fake show names so they can get these things printed to put them on the board, and they have to get them cleared. And he's like, oh, all right, well, I'll get to it. And I was like, well, here, here's 100 that I've already made. And he's like, oh, really? And then he just sat there checking off his favorites and laughing his ass off. And so now every single fake name on that board was mine. So when they saw that on the set, and they're like, oh, that's such a funny name for a show. 
and he's he would always be like, oh, Dave wrote that. Dave wrote that, you know. So you start to not be looked at a little differently, is what I'm saying, you know. Right. And um, so that show was a pilot, got picked up to series. Um, so we shot it in like March or April of that year, which would have been March or April of that year, and it would have been, uh, I guess, 2001. And then that summer, he it got picked up, and I was actually, I, I'm not going to tell this part of the story because it's boring, but I was, I was actually PAing on another one of his shows, um, in post-production and I got a call from him and he said, Hey, actually from his partner, uh, cause he had a producing partner at the time. And she said, Hey, uh, I just want to let you know that you may have heard the sh- Wednesday nine 30 was called the web at the time, got picked up to series and Peter would like to make you a staff writer on the show. And he told me later to my face that the reason he did that is because I wrote that script. So even though I had a long relationship with him, sort of a couple of years, met him online, clever and all that, it didn't mean that I was someone he was going to hand a writing job to who had never done a writing job. So for me, that was the equivalent of you put on your own Broadway show or your own improv show or whatever it was, and you impress the right people. It was, I wrote this silly script that, you know, was kind of meta and used all of his references in the right way. And oh, and by the, by the way, uh, because there's a timeline in the in the episode of the show, like any show of TV you watch doesn't necessarily happen in the same day. It's like two, three, four days or a week. Um, in television production, that means you go from table read to like first re- revision, second revisions, third revision, shooting draft. So over the course of the timeline of his script, we would see actors holding the just the three of us script that I had written, but we were putting it out with colored pages as if it was revised. Mm. So I was revising it throughout the week. So like we had cast this British guy as one of the two main male leads and so i just went through and put bloody this bloody that and everyone just to have asterisks on it which is what you do when you edit a script and then so we'd have a pink page and we put it out and it was like an actual script was being edited all week yeah. as if it mattered it didn't matter <laughs> right 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 right, right <laughs> but right. it shows like well one it shows a ton of initiative for and this, taking the detail yeah for this person to come and do that that's you know people like to see that i just saw recently a chris rock quote online and it was cool it was like he was talking about or the quote was, or the story he was telling was that he, um, he, he's supposedly he was driving in his car would always break down and he'd always wave to try to get people to stop and help. And he goes, no one would stop. He goes, but every time I push the car myself, people would stop. He goes, people like to see you try, you know, like instead of just like handouts, like you struggling or hustling, you know, and that's kind of like yeah. what you're doing and that's yeah. or what you did. Mm-hmm. I do think there's an advantage when you're young. Um, People want to help. They, it's, it's more stereotypical that a young person is trying to break in than it is an old person. When you say young, what is what do you mean? I mean like 22 to 30, 28. 38? 22 to 38-ish? <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just think in general people want to help the young. Like it's like, oh, well, that guy want. I used to be 22 want, – speaking from the place of Peter in the story or whoever, uh, I used to be 22 and wanted to write professionally. I remember when I was like him, I needed a break. Everyone needs a break. There's, there's luck involved in everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's like, and that guy's working so hard for it. Let me give him his break. Let me help him. Whereas if you're like 40, maybe they don't think that way unless the person happened to have a similar story. And they're like, I remember when I was 40 and had been working 20 years in accounting and then gave it up to try and pursue writing. And you know, like, like I identify with that, so I want to help that person. But most people, I think, identify with the young person. Right. Mm-hmm. So they'll take that. But don't extra give step. up, Tweety. I'm never <laughs> going to give up. If there's one thing, I will. I'll be a hundred years old, poor, and die trying. Yeah. 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 Um, I've noticed that about you when you're running your mile. 
Yeah, I'm telling you, man. Hey, <laughs> started out at 11 minutes. Um, you're down to six. Six forty-five. Dude, I started out where I didn't even finish, and I would come back, and they were done with a 10-minute ab finisher. Going, what did you go yeah. get breakfast? Because I couldn't run a mile. And the and that's such an insult because you, I mean the breakfast is like a block away. So <laughs> when I first started, this is such nobody gives a shit. But I'm sharing the story anyways. When I first started, and you guys can't see Baldy, but he outweighs me by like I bet you a solid forty pounds. I'm, I'm two sixteen right now. Two sixteen. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was. That's what I was when I started, and I've lost forty pounds. So you're forty pounds. Oh really? Yeah, you're forty pounds heavier yeah, than but me. But just to paint the picture, it's solid muscle. Yeah, in, in he's ca- been, encased in one inch of fat. <laughs> but um, and he's always been this size, like, and he's a beast. Like when he works out, he's a beast. So, but but I'm running, and I remember looking at him and just seeing him take off in this dead sprint and being like, I can beat that guy. And about half a block in, I'm about dead, and he's just trucking. Nobody cares. Dude. This story is horrible. <laughs> but I just was very impressed with how fast he could run for a big guy. Anyways, um, oh, moving on. Why don't uh, you guys just go make out already? Yeah. Oh. Hey, man. <laughs> um, that's uncalled for. Um, okay, so we're at about – we're at a little over an hour right now. And okay. I wanted to – I just want to take maybe 10 minutes to do some, like, kind of rapid-fire style questions with you and see if we can – see if we can just pick the baldy brain. Okay. Trademark. Okay. Um, so do you have any questions at the top of your head? Yeah. I mean, I have more or less like, so, uh, kind of like the flow of, of when you're in a room and you're pitching, do, do you guys generate ideas for episodes on your own? Is, is that something you do in a room that you have a huge whiteboard and you're, you're putting down like plots or like mm-hmm. what is kind of the process for creating episodes for a the TV show? The process is normally... Um, because you'll find out you have a job at least two weeks before you have a job. And so when you show up either on day one, you've already got a half dozen ideas or three ideas at least. And, and so like when you're, when you say you have ideas, like, can you sort of, so let's say, let's say you've hired me and Jeremiah. What would you tell us when you hired us? Well, you, in this scenario, there's a series, which means there was a pilot. Okay. So you have something to watch and say, look, you get what we did in the, in the first episode. He has funny adventures every week and he ended okay. up you know, uh, in a cemetery by accident. Well, where are we going to put him next week? And you're like, wouldn't it be funny if that guy with that point of view ended up in a dog show? You know? Okay, and then and you, then, you pitch like four or five jokes. Well, no, no. Um, you're saying per episode? I'm, I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking, for me, for me it's hard to, for me to re- make that jump from sketch because in sketch you'd be like, oh, here's the, the premise in the game. Oh, right. Well, yours here's are not related. Y- yours are all different. You know, there's no one character. Right. Like, imagine if, like on SNL, right. and they're doing Pat, or they're doing, you know, a famous recurring character. It's, Pat's funny in any situation, right? And it's right. like, well, we already did Pat in a barbershop, where the, where the uh, hairdresser didn't know whether it, he was a boy or a girl, so right. we didn't know how much to charge him for the haircut. Where else would it be funny for someone, we don't know if they're a man or a woman, to show up, you know? And I can't, off the top of my head, think of another place that they did, but maybe speed dating or something, right? right. And you're like... Okay, so everyone's sitting at the table, and one minute goes by, and you switch, and now Pat's sitting in front of you, and you're like, I don't even know if this is a man or a woman. So how, that affects the questions you ask, right? Right. You know, what are your interests? You and know? so then you'd, pin, so, you'd bring this idea into the meeting, and then you would also bring, like, these are four or five or six or ten things that could happen at this place with this character that would be funny? Um, I would say you could do that, but more importantly is 
the big picture idea. Yeah, it's, it's not like the small stories, jokes. right? Like it's yeah, a whole it's plot stories. of the episode. It's not a whole plot though. It's like, it's 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 like I just said. You'd be like, well, in the pilot, ambiguously, um, I don't know how to say it. it's. It, how would you describe Pat? She's sexually ambiguous. Sure. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, in the pilot, this sexually ambiguous character goes to a hair salon and has a very funny scene where the hairdresser doesn't know how much to charge him or her. Where else would that be funny? It would be funny in a speed dating episode. So I thought we could do a speed dating episode. It could be as simple as that, that you're pitching. Oh, okay. Or because that one sparks your brain so much, you're like, oh my God, and then this could happen, and then this could happen. Or here's a couple really funny jokes that could come in that scene. That okay, I'm so that's what my question is. So the more is. that so you, you can do with, that, could be the better. But remember, you might pitch it and you might go, no, to, or her, your showrunner, and he or she might go, no, I don't want to do a speed dating episode. It doesn't matter. You have like the best one page or five page pitch. You know, we're really just talking about like three sentences per idea. And if they're like, oh, that's so funny, we should do a speed dating, you can go home that night and come up with some more thoughts that will okay. expand on it. Okay. But really, it's like you want to say speed dating, you want to say uh, goes to a hot, maybe goes for a physical, you know, okay. and the doctor is like, drop your pants or whatever um and whatever other ones you can think of and you're just like what if pat does this what if pat does that what if pat does this and every writer is bringing those in essentially you so know? you want to and and a lot of writers are going to bring in the same ones no not in my experience oh really no we're oh, all that's individual thinkers with creative minds i would hope like unless something's just like a slam dunk so obvious that this show should do that idea but I've never experienced it. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. I would assume like if someone said ambiguously, like speed dating to me makes so much sense that I feel like if you had 20 people go home and think about where to put that person, that the first within the first five, everybody would put speed dating. Well, maybe, but also that's a sketch idea with a much simpler setup. Yeah, that's than fair. Like a half hour show is going to be true. six different characters that you could combine in many ways to create your stories. Right. And there's always going to be A stories, B stories, and sometimes C stories, which is, you know, the main story, the secondary story, and sometimes a third story, depending on what characters are not being serviced. If you're paying an actor every week, you're going to use them. So, you know, if you watch Friends, it's generally structured two stories, three characters, and three characters, or three stories, two, two, two. You know, or sometimes all six in one thing, and it's like the whole episode. But everyone always has a storyline, you know. Um, so you would come in and have your own ideas for episodes mm -hmm. that can be as detailed or as short as you think you need it to be, right? Yes. And then, so the the how many of those ideas does a whole group create? Like for well, say for say, twenty two, I don't I don't know how how typically long is a Wilford season for. Wilford was 10 to 13. Um, most shows get picked up for usually 13 on a network show. And then if it does well, they'll pick up for the back nine and there'll be a total of 22. So shows like Big Bang Theory, stuff like that, they generally do 22 episodes a year because they're already a proven commodity. So that's a normal year for them. But they're few and far between successful shows at that level. And shows that are that successful, sometimes they get 24 because they're just trying to get them to syndication and the magic number is like 100. So they want to get there as fast because they're making so much money on the, that show once it syndicates that they just want to get as much material as possible. Mm -hmm. um, for Wilfred... You know, in basic cable, they don't generally go past 13 episodes. Mid-season shows will do six sometimes, and then maybe they air them in the summer. I think Seinfeld was a six-episode mid-season, I think. I think Raymond was. Everybody loves Raymond. And then it does well enough in the summer. They're like, well, let's give it a shot. You know, there's so many different ways. There's no one path to anything in this town 
whether it's you trying to become a writer or an actor or whether it's a show getting on the air or getting from right. you know, pilot to getting on the air or whatever. Right. Um, but uh, just to try and wrap up your question, I think generally how it works is every writer comes in with two, three, four, five, half a dozen ideas, or you show up on the first day, you get sort of the lay of the land from the showrunner. He's like, this is what I'm thinking for the season. So go home. We're going to let you out at noon today. Come back tomorrow with three or four ideas. Um, and then you come back and everyone says their idea. And then it sparks a conversation. You know, some are like a lot of times with a first season of a show, the showrunner's already in, in fact in order to sell it he generally has to pitch future episodes and it's like so this is the pilot you already love that but here's some ideas for episodes that we're going to do in the future and they're like yeah i love that and that helps sell it because they're like i can't wait to see those episode ideas so if you're doing like 13 episodes the showrunner might have two three four that he's definitely going to do anyway because he's been thinking about this for a year you just started thinking about it mm -hmm. you know and then everyone brings in a couple ideas maybe there's like maybe he's like i love that one i love that one they don't become, it's not that simple. It's not like you pitch an idea and then we're doing that idea exactly how it is. You know, I remember one season I pitched, we should do something on Wilford with dog cloning. Um, because this has become a thing now where people will clone, they love their pet so much and it's died or dying. So they clone it, but just cloning, it doesn't create the same dog that you had before. It's genetically the same, but it could be an asshole when your dog was awesome. You know, mm -hmm. there's just, like, you better off just finding a new dog. Who's awesome. You know? Yeah. Um, and that was literally all I pitched. And uh, one of the showrunners at the time turned it into this amazing story, almost like within 90 seconds. And it became the, the season opener, season three. Um, but like that's, that's an example of like an ill-formed pitch on my part that became an actual very important episode of the series, you know? Um, and then sometimes you pitch more um, thought out and more complex things. But it's generally just enough to sell the showrunner and saying, I see the potential in that. Yes, let's do that, you know? I remember, you may have even seen this episode of Wilford because you said you saw a few in the beginning. Um, there was an episode where he's in a doggy daycare and he's, like, molested. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was, that. the idea was just basically pitched, like, what if he goes to doggy daycare and the guy, like, makes him lick peanut butter off his balls and then he's, like, emotionally. I think I saw that episode, too. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's one of the more famous ones. And he's, and he's emotionally distraught because, like, we never put ourselves in the point of view of the dog. And right. he's, like, it's as if he's been child abused, you right. know. Um, and so that was all that was pitched, what I just told you. And that was, like, we're definitely doing that one. And mm -hmm. so that goes up on the board as potential episode ideas. It's not going to be episode two because... You know, pilots usually set up a premise. Episode two usually reinforces that premise for those that are jumping on board after the first episode. And then you start to slowly, you know, veer. So in that case, I think it was episode four that mm -hmm. we did that one. Like you're earning, uh, you're earning you credibility. You have to establish or the foundation, bef I, I feel like, before, before you, you go can go, go, veer go to crazy, crazy town. town. Yeah. Like at the first episode you saw, I mean, don't get me wrong. There is an audience, of course, for the first episode you see being peanut butter ball licking. Oh my God, that's so funny. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm your audience for that. Yeah. But you want to know so the you, characters. Jeremiah, don't give me that smug look. You're also the audience for that. <laughs> no, I'm that. I'm way more classy. You want to know the characters. You want to know their relationships. And all that needs to be set up and reinforced so that you can appreciate the twists and turns of later episodes or else your, your brain is catching up instead mm -hmm. of just being in the moment, you know? It's like um, I do a lot of Channel 101 I don't know if you're, I don't know, but it's a, it's five minute comedic pilots. Dan Harmon started it back okay. in the two thousands or whatnot. And, uh, we've gotten picked up on a couple of ones, episode one. And the hardest is to create episode two and still have people enjoy it because you want 
some of the same stuff in the first, meaning like you want to be able to establish the same thing that people liked in your first episode, but then also create new kind of like where this is potentially leading towards mm -hmm. in a different, you know, direction. So you're saying one, two, three is one, two is similar in terms of, of what, like, uh, it's almost like a second pilot. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in my experience and there, mm -hmm. again, there's always, in fact, once that becomes obvious and expected, you should veer away from it because entertainment mm -hmm. is about delivering the unexpected in any form of entertainment. Mm, you are good. bored when you expect something. Hmm. So this is my theory. I'm sure I'm not the only person who has this, but when you're a kid, you find pun jokes funny because you haven't heard them yet. Then you hear them so much. You're like, I know what he's going to say. I know what I see what the joke is already. Then you, your taste evolve and, and it keeps evolving if you're, focused on comedy like you guys are it keeps evolving until you know things that used to make you laugh in sitcoms when you were 15 you watch them now and you cringe and you're like oh why did i ever laugh at that because it was tickling your brain at the time and now your brain knows to expect it so that's why in my opinion tv keeps evolving to edgier and edgier because we keep getting older and older we're the generation that grew up watching tv all the time our parents didn't have TV like at our age. Right. Didn't sit in front of a TV all day, so they didn't have that baseline of things that they came to expect. So Al Bundy wasn't was original in the '80s, but Al Bundy is like old hat now. Yeah, I mean, probably. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen enough current stuff that compares to that to to say that definitively. But uh, probably. I mean, I'm just saying that. Every person is different. If you were in a coma for 30 years and like the last thing you saw, like if you grew up on Boy Meets Girl, boy, is that, or what's the name of that? Boy Meets World. What is it? Boy Meets World? Yeah, Boy Meets World. Fred Savage's on, brother? Yeah, Ben Savage. If you grew up on that Before show and then you went to a coma for 20 years, you might come out of it right now and think stuff on you know Disney kids' channels or whatever is really funny. As a 30-year-old, you might think Oh, that. I see what you're saying, yeah. Because you didn't have 20 years of seeing that stuff and then seeing the slight progression, slight progression, slight progression that made you like the current and dislike the, the, the past, you know? So for you, it's like, wow, this stuff's the funniest thing ever. And everyone else is like, no, dude, I've been watching that garbage. Sorry, I didn't mean to call it garbage. But 20 years I've been watching stuff, and that is not funny to me anymore. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. Um, so I got another question okay. real quick. So do you – for, for – uh, so like, uh, one of my favorite shows is house MD. Um, it's not comedy, but it's a fairly successful TV show, right? Full disclosure. I've never seen an episode, so this might be hard. Okay. I only, well, I only know two things. There's well, a doctor and he's in a wheelchair. Oh, I didn't even know he's in a wheelchair. The, well, you're 50% wrong Rex, because he's not in a wheelchair. <laughs> That's professor. Oh, he's Rex. not in a wheelchair. <laughs> no, he has a cane. So 50% of the it's things really that funny. you know I, are I False. feel like I've, I've seen one episode of that show and he was in a wheelchair in the episode I saw. He may have been. There is a couple and so, episodes where he gets in a wheelchair to prove. So in my head, he's just always in a wheelchair. No, but anyways. Okay. That's great. So for a show like that, that, um, I mean, I, I, I'd imagine. Okay. So say they do 22 shows or whatever. There's different writers for each episode. What, who claims the writing credit for mm, that? Good question. Yeah. Do you, um, I have not been on an hour long drama. I assume it's generally the same. Wilfred was more of a, of a, it was definitely more serialized show than a typical half hour comedy. So I would call it a dramedy mm -hmm. and there was some heavy stuff in it. So I would definitely call it a dramedy. Um, but typically the writer's room creates the ideas and then each writer is assigned a script and then, usually they're given a week off where they're not in the room and they can go work from their office or they can work at home or whatever. 
and they write the first draft of the script. And then usually that script comes back, the showrunner reads it, and then either he'll do or she will do their own pass on it to change it to their tastes. Um, or the room will do a pass on it. You know, some shows write everything right from the room. They just have an outline and then a certain usually smaller group, like if there's 10 or 15 on a staff, only five maybe will be in the room writing the script. And the showrunner will lead that charge. And it's just creating it from blank page to complete script because I mean, it just stands to reason if you're the showrunner or even more, if you created the show, you're going to like your own stuff more, or you're going to feel that you know the voice of the show more than anyone you hire. That's just common sense. So I never take it personally when my stuff gets rewritten. I, I learned that lesson on my first show because you think, Oh my God, I spent so much time and effort writing this. I was up all night. Like I just, poured over every detail. I couldn't make this any better in the time I was given. It's awesome. He's going to love it. It's going to blow him away. And then he rewrites 60% of it, like almost unrecognizably. And then, and, and I did feel on the first show, I did feel the sting of that. And I was like, what the heck? Like, I thought I did such a good job. I've watched so much TV in my life. I know this would have been a good episode the way I wrote it. But this guy just changed 60% like with his, his first thought. What makes his first thought better than the one that I put five thoughts into, you know? And I remember talking to him in that example, and he said, and I was like, I was like, just to, just out of curiosity, because it's my first job, and I'm, and I'm, I want to get better. Um, did I do a bad job writing the scripts, or something I could have done better? And he goes, No, he goes, yours was, yours was, took the least time to rewrite out of all of them. And I was like, Oh wow, changing sixty percent of the entire script or more uh, was considered a, a good job. Okay, and so I stopped taking it personally at that point because you just have to put yourself in their shoes and realize their career or their future financial situation or whatever is all at stake on this too. They want to die on their own words, you know? Mm -hmm. um, if things are, what, what I mean by that is if things are like 50, 50 yours versus theirs, they're going to go with theirs, you know? Sure. Right, if yeah. you pitch something that's just unbelievably, no doubt about it, like that has to be in there, then that's going to be in there, mm -hmm. you know? But if it's sixes, they're going to go with theirs. They're going to think their thing's funnier. Mm. Um, but you still get writing credit for that then. Well, when you're you assigned the script and you mm -hmm. go off and you write that first draft, generally the way it works is that's going to be your script. And it's kind of like divvied out by um, rank on the show. Like, for example, in, in Wilford season one, the showrunner wrote three out of the 13 and the co-EPs wrote two, if I'm remembering correctly. So that's five. So there's eight left. And there was one... I can't remember all the writing entities right now, but basically no one else got more than one mm. because the most important person took three and the second most important people got two and then everyone else got one because it's extra money and it's residuals and stuff like that. Um, so that's generally how it works in a writer's room because no one episode is all one person anyway. So it really is just like, how do we share this fairly? Mm -hmm. If you pitch the story idea, I've been on shows and seen where you might get the story credit because it's undeniable that we wouldn't even be talking about an episode like that if it wasn't for you and you came in with it well thought out it wasn't just like a sentence they might give you that credit in that situation or if an outside like like you know my mom pitched this idea and this has happened my mom not me personally but i've seen it in rooms my mom pitched this idea to me this weekend while we we're on the phone and it's actually kind of good and then you say it to the room and they're like oh my god that is good and they do it and then they give credit to the mom for the story <laughs> but somebody else wrote it you right, know, like, yeah, right. like, somebody's assigned to write that story script. by written. By I have right. written, I think I wrote seven out of 49 Wilfred episodes that aired. And, um, but I also rewrote one from scratch that another writer had turned in that I was told to go fix. And I also wrote a third of one on my own that, uh, was credited to somebody else. So it's not, 
you know, and of course I contributed stuff to all the remaining episodes, you know. How long are they typically? Scripts? Yeah, for these, is it 22 pages? No. Um, Wilfred is a single camera show, and there's different formats on the page for single versus multi. And for Wilfred, uh, a single, I should say for a half hour single camera show, they can be up to like 35 pages, but generally no more than 30. And in Wilfred's case, we found, and again, this, you're limited by the minutes. So you have 22 minutes. If you have characters who talk fast, like Seinfeld, those scripts were long for a multi-camera show. But if you have characters who talk slow, like they did on Wilfred, then you have shorter scripts. So we found about 24 pages of material would fill an episode that was 22 minutes long. Hmm, that's but good. in a multi-camera show with a different format where they double space dialogue and stuff like that, you're talking 40 pages, 45 pages. I think, I think Seinfeld scripts may have been 50 pages to get a 22-minute show because it's just rapid-fire you know, right. His girl Friday style. How does it work where, so you had to rewrite someone's script script from baseline, right? Like, so a writer was assigned a script. It wasn't, they were given a story. Yes. Right. And they didn't do a good enough job or they, is it just because it didn't fit the showrunners what they had in mind or was it because, because I mean, it can't be bad, right? Everyone who's I'm assuming in the writing room is, is a good writer it just well, they wouldn't be there if they didn't prove that they were a good writer. But that right. doesn't mean that your sensibilities are a good match for the show that you're on. For sure, um, you know, anyone who hires anyone, any job, you don't hit at a hundred percent, you know, a success rate for the people you hire. So, right. Um, I'm, I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I can't think of a specific, and I don't mean from my own life, but just in Hollywood. I know there have been instances where people. Uh, got fired off shows and went on to do... Okay, here's one. Well, actually, I don't know if he was fired, but the creator of Mad Men was on Naked Truth, which was a half-hour sitcom with Taya Leone in the 90s. Um, and, you know, he was just like essentially me, you know, just like a guy who was like a mid-level, maybe became a co-EP type. You never heard of him, writer. His name is Matt uh, Weiner. And then he wrote a spec f- for Mad Men around 19, late 90s or 2000. And that was actually what got him hired on Sopranos. And then he was on Sopranos, and he killed it, and he moved up the ranks there, and he became, like, the most valuable person there, from my understanding, you know, my outside, knowing nothing from the inside, just having followed the industry and read books uh, that talk about insider stories. It's like he was perceived as one of the more talented people there, and he had written this great spec, but no one wanted to do that. I'm veering off, but I'll just tell you anyway because I think it's a cool story. No one wanted to do the Mad Men thing. Then AMC decided they want to do original programming in like 2007 or whatever year it was. And, you know, people were like, well, you know, the spec's been around town for seven, ten years, and everyone always loves it. And they're like, let's see it. And they're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And then that's Mad Men for five years, mm-hmm. you know, something he had written ten years earlier. So he wasn't um, – or he may not have been a best fit for whatever he got or the – Well, the Naked fit. Truth – I'm not saying yeah. he wasn't because I don't know specifics of that particular period. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, what is that – Alan Ball – who wrote American Beauty and did he win the Oscar? He was nominated. I don't know if he won. Um, I feel like he won. He created uh, Six Feet Under and he created um, what's that vampire show that was on HBO up until recently? True, um, True Blood. Yeah, True Blood. True Blood. Yeah. And you know those are very different from the sitcoms that he had come off of. He was a half-hour sitcom writer, mm-hmm. you know, and he was just you know someone you'd never heard of, and then suddenly he's a brand. You know, he's a guy. Um, so I'm saying that to you because I don't think it matters that somebody is or isn't talented necessarily why the script is bad. It's just not – they're just not 
at the time of writing that script, they had not caught on to what the voice of the show was. Right. So if they were there for a year or two years longer, maybe they would have caught on. But mm-hmm. you're not usually given that much rope, mm-hmm. that much slack, because these jobs are hard to come by. You only have so much budget to hire people. You've got to get someone in there who does have the voice. So know? there's no denying that, say, Tom Brady is an athlete. Sure. But the Los Angeles Lakers might not be the best fit for him. I would agree with that statement. Is that the same thing? I find it hard to think hard enough to answer that question. Uh, okay, good, I, good. I would maybe – okay, yes, that's fine. Uh, okay, great. I'll take that. Um, <laughs> Perfect okay. example. I yeah. have two – okay, I have one last question for you before we let you – Mosey on off into Mopped the, the sunset. Sweat off my brow from this very it hot is room. very hot in here, Jeremiah. I'm sorry. I am also wearing two sweatshirts. <laughs> um, is there anything you recommend for? Now it's disgusting. Oh wow! Um, I thought we lost you. Yeah, no, I thought I was gonna have a stroke for a second. Um, the show must go on. So. <laughs> okay, mm. um, my nose is bleeding. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anything I is, is there anything you recommend like websites, books, teachers, classes, anything that you think that people can go out and utilize to become better? I mean, is it like uh, apps on your phone to make you a better typist? Like, what are the things that you would recommend? Well, you don't need to be a good typist to be a good writer, okay. because generally you're going to be off alone in your office or your bedroom or coffee shop doing your own thing at your own pace, and no one's going to know whether you can type or not. And believe me. Not every writer, or even maybe even half the writers in every room, are nearly as fast as the writer's assistants. That part of the conversation was if you want to go, you want to be successful as a writer's assistant to therefore be in a room and get a chance to pitch jokes and make impressions, then you have to be fast because that's the job you're doing. You okay. Know? And you will slow down, you know, 100000 a week in salary over your 1000 a week in salary because you don't do your job right, right? Right. That's not a good way to run a business, right? Right. Um, I'm not current on how to do these things, so what I'm about to say might be antiquated, but there are books out there, like I mentioned earlier, there's one on, and there might be more now, I'm sure there are more, um, on writing for half-hour sitcoms. There's probably a book now for how to write a, an hour-long drama, because you need to know the structure and the format, and that stuff doesn't really change, you know, in terms of how it should appear on a, on a page. Um, and then, and this is so cliche, and I, I hate to say it, but I, I it truly, this is, this is life advice. It's not just writing advice. It's practice. You know, it's, you wanted to, as you mentioned a couple of times in this podcast, you want to be really good at running a mile. Mm-hmm. So you better just keep running miles. Right. Right. And you're like, Oh, I beat it by five seconds. I beat it by one second. I didn't beat it. Damn it. I'm going to try harder next time. And now I beat it by another second. And it's just that it's anything. Do you think major league baseball players or professional athletes aren't doing that every day of their life. They're saying, I threw the ball 85 miles an hour in high school. I want to throw it 86. I want to throw it 87. You know, Mm -hmm. they're constantly working like, oh, maybe if I bring my shoulder over the top, I'll get more torque and I'll be able to add a mile. Whatever it is, it's just perfecting your craft. Whatever that is, it's just doing it over and over and over again and you get better at it and that's the way we're designed. So you should be writing. If you want to be an improv guy, you should be improving. And that it's so cliche, you've heard it before, but it just makes sense. You know, um, I think I told, yeah, you were the, Ryan, I told you, um, and I think it applies here. I read this article that I'll do no justice to. Um, I sent you the link. Did you read it on the, the neurons in your brain yes. moving closer together? That was written by, a, um, I think, a neurologist. 
that the science is that actually when you practice things over and over, your brain changes and the neurons or whatever scientific terms that I'm not going to remember accurately um, that need to, to touch each other or to send a signal to each other actually move closer together because they're like, this is inefficient. You're asking me to do this thing that requires me to send a message from six inches away. But you keep asking me to do that thing because every day you're running or every day you're writing or every day you're improving. So why don't I just move those closer together and then it'll just be a really short message that has to be sent between us. And that's how you get better, mm -hmm. right? You're physically changing. You're saying, like, I, if I practice that one skill, then my body will adapt and make me better at it. That's why you can't just go run your first mile and be an Olympian. Like, it's not that easy. You know, you have mm -hmm. to work, 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 work at it until your body evolves in every way possible to make that outcome the most efficient path for itself. Hmm. Great. That's There's great. a lot of sports references. In yeah, that's good, though. That's, if there's one thing I know about comedians is... And your audience. You know what's Comedy funny? and sports. Comedy and sports. But actually, you, that used to be a joke. It used to be a joke, like comedians and sports, but now I feel like it's not a joke. Like, every comedian I know is, like, talking about the Clippers mm -hmm. right now. Sure. Um, okay. Why would they be talking about the Clippers when the finals is on and they're not in it? Oh, did I say Clippers? Yeah. I mean... I know sports. I mean... Cavaliers and Golden Cavaliers is what I meant. I don't know anything about <laughs> basketball. Um, I only know Nebraska football. Um, okay, so... Is there anything... I'm going to give you your opportunity, Mr. David Baldy. Is there anything that we can do of service to you by letting you talk about it? Is there anything you would like to tell us about that you're working on or oh. businesses you run or <laughs> plugs yeah. of sorts. Yeah. Um, I feel weird telling that asking a co executive producer if he wants to plug something that just feels <laughs> like, mm -hmm. no, no, I'm good. Uh, I do want to, I do want to <laughs> say one thing though. Okay. Um, that we just didn't get to in the timeline of how to make it. Cause me telling my origin story got you to like me becoming a writer at that point in my life. I thought I had made it and this was easy. Like, because I had been out here, I don't know, two years, and I was 23, you know, and I'm like, God, I just jumped the biggest hurdle possible. I got my first staff job. And as a result, I had meetings with every major agency in town, and I pretty much could have picked whatever agency I wanted to go to. And that's a whole other podcast of telling you the bad decisions involving agents. Mm. But um, not all my agents, in case you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> You, you break into, you, in my life, I, I had overcome the biggest hurdle and I had my pick of all these agencies and I was like, I made it. The rest is easy. Everyone, all these books I read and all these things that I read about this, this was the hard part and I did it. Like, this is going to be cake now. Why wouldn't, I just assumed because I have a credit on a show with a known showrunner that someone else is going to be like, well, let's bring that guy in because he must have some knowledge and skill if he impressed that successful guy, you know? And that wasn't what it was like. And so I spent like the next... I don't know, two years not getting writing work and then, you know, eventually taking PA work. So I went from a PA to a writer assistant to a writer to a PA to a writer assistant to a writer. Like twice, I did that twice in my life. And then I happened to be on a show that went somewhere. Um, prior to Wilfred, I did two years on a Comedy Central show. And then when Wilfred hit, it went for four years. And then suddenly you're a little more marketable and, you know, I got a couple years on another show. Um, but it's, it's, it's not a guarantee. So, Two things. Number one, even if you succeed, which is the goal I'm guessing of your listeners right now, and what you're trying to extract from me is how to break in, how to succeed. It doesn't mean the journey never ends. Like you're in, 
and now you got to keep working just as hard if you want to keep going. It's not, it's having an agent meant nothing to the beginning of my career. Okay. Every job I ever had that paid me to this day, I got myself and I have been at CAA. I've been at William Morris, um, back at CAA. I have management companies and I'm not saying that they haven't helped in ways like get me meetings and stuff, but I've never been paid on a job in 16 years of my career from anything other than me getting that job. Okay. And I did that like three or four times from a writer assistant position to a writer where I got like a paid script because I was, you know, impressing the room and that's something they'll do, which is, will help you to get from writer assistant to writer is if you do show yourself worthy of being a writer, they might throw you a script because they still want you in the room. Why wouldn't they want a guy who's contributing at writer level to be the guy in the corner typing? Now I have an extra writer at a fourth the price, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so they throw you a script so you can get a script fee and residuals and healthcare and stuff like that. And uh, you crush that and maybe they put you on staff, you know, like, so there's that. But last story, um, around 2005, I guess, I had been the, the script coordinator, which is the fancy name for writer assistants, like, the lead writer's assistant um, on a show and the line producer on that show, I didn't even really get along with that well, but when that show ended, that line producer went over to do a pilot for David Zuckerman who created Wilfred, uh, the American version. And David did not have a writer's assistant person that he wanted to use for his pilot. He didn't have the, the people he knew were working on shows. So he didn't have someone available that he could just use. So he told the line producer to get me, resumes for some people and for whatever reason i guess because even though i didn't get along that great with the line producer he knew that i was good at my job he threw my name into that hat and then david zuckerman said i want scripts spec scripts from all these candidates which has never i've never heard of since or before i'd never experienced before and i had worked three or four of these jobs and interviewed for others that's never been asked because as i told you earlier people want generally for you to be quiet in the corner they don't want to know you want to be a writer they want you to be the secretary in general okay maybe things have changed a little bit but that's how it was back then so i'm like okay so i have to send spec scripts to get a writer's assistant job sure because i already had several and i knew they were good so i didn't care i was like what's going on so he brought me in i don't even think he brought in a second candidate but i could be wrong and he said the reason you're sitting here and the, re the reason i want you to be my writer's assistant is because i liked your scripts the best and I was like, okay, cool. And he's like, so if you want the job, it's yours. And this was for a pilot, not Wilford. This was for a pilot that didn't go to series a few years before Wilford. And I said, all right, cool. And I said, well, I want the job. I said, can I ask you one question? He said, sure. And I said, I've done this a number of times and no one has ever asked for spec scripts. Why are you asking for a spec script? And he said, because I believe that writer's assistants are future writers and I want to help somebody out. And I was like, that's the most amazing thing you're ever going to hear when you're trying to break in somewhere. You know, this is a guy who, in case you don't know, David Zuckerman um, co-developed Family Guy. So if you watch any episode of Family Guy at the beginning, it'll say developed or co-developed by David Zuckerman, which means he makes money on every episode of Family Guy. Like he has tons of money. Okay. He doesn't have to do anything for him. He doesn't have to work. But he was saying that to this guy he had never met before and was hiring off the street, essentially. And... I worked for him on that pilot, made a good impression. It was only three or four weeks when you do a pilot as a writer's assistant, but you're in the room constantly and there's not a writing staff. So you get to talk more if you're capable of it and get more jokes in and make more and better impressions because there's less people vying for that airtime. And he was impressed enough with me that at the end of that pilot, he said, if this goes to series, you're on staff. 
After three or four weeks of knowing him, he said, if this goes to series, you're on staff. That is like the ultimate outcome for somebody trying to break in. Unfortunately, the show didn't go to series, so I was super bummed, but we kept in touch. And then a few years later, when he had to do the Wilford pitch and stuff, he asked me to come write assist at his house and take down his notes and stuff, and of course, pitch and contribute. And then he went off and he pitched it and he sold it, and it went to series and he hired me, you know? So just work your, do the best that you can for every connection that you have. Don't look at them as connections. I don't mean to make it seem right. like it's a formula, because mm -hmm. I wasn't doing it because it's a connection. I'm still very friendly with David now. It's not, it's, it's not, I don't mean to give the impression that you're using somebody as a business angle. I'm just mm -hmm. saying we're all in this industry together. We all have our goals that we're trying to achieve, including the David Zuckmans of the world. And they're going to need writer assistance or they're going to need writers or they're going to need whatever. Show yourself to be really good at that and make his life easy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then he's going to think of you when that opportunity arises. That's great advice. That's Heck yeah. Yeah. Thank you, man. This has been great. Thanks, bud. I really appreciate you coming on. I feel like, I feel like I'm smarter now. Than I was an hour and a half ago. That's weird. I feel dumber. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what happens when you spend time with me. I have that effect on people. Um, so uh, I guess real quick, please go to iTunes and subscribe mm -hmm. to us. Please do that. That helps. Go on Twitter and follow us at Foopod. Foopod. Send in. Uh, this is a kind of a special episode, but we do tend to have um, other sketch, other sketch writers on. And if you send us your sketch at foopod f-o-o-w-p-o-d at gmail.com um we'll put it in the hopper and we'll have a uh, one of our guests one of our guests take a crack at take it take a crack at it yeah uh uh dad gene second sunday of the month 9 p.m uh i think that's all the shows i have there's some other bit ones but i don't know that you ever hear dates. back from uh comedy central comedy central no i think we're we're coming back towards the we have 45 days, and I think we're – I think it's maybe been just over 30. Okay, so you still got a couple weeks. Yeah, but, you know. Well, they'll be, they'll be, they'll be fucking stupid and they'll not be take it, bro, if they're, they're, they're lost. It, but we'll see how it goes. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, Ms. Smith, which is the third Sunday of her month. And, um, and yeah, iOS main yeah. stage. Uh, Mr. Baldy. We don't have a uh, tagline for our podcast, so every episode we ask our guests to come up with our tagline. So, fish out of water. Yeah, this is this is going to be a very disappointing ending. To, <laughs> could, could a good fish out of water. This is going to be a very disappointing ending. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna have to think about that. <laughs> fish out. I would of rather water. I would rather come back you with something good than fish cool. something bad. I'll so email me later tonight and I'll uh, throw I'll it in the like end. <laughs> and I'll just <laughs> David has said to, uh, the president said not coming up with much, much like this podcast. Uh, it will only get better if we could think about it and redo it. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Awesome. Thank you very much, man. Thanks, buddy. This has been a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.